Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today we're having part two of our kidney discussion, but it's much more than just a kidney discussion, as you're going to hear. So my, I'm interviewing Dr. Keith Runyon, who's a nephrologist and obesity medicine specialist in Florida, but he also has type 1 diabetes himself. So that's why uh, I say it's much more than a, a kidney discussion, because he is a nephrologist. He's an expert in kidney disease. He's uh, very experienced in using ketogenic diets and, and knows all about ketogenic diets in chronic kidney disease. Uh, the amount of protein that he recommends, when to be concerned, when not to be concerned, both for kidney disease and for kidney stones. And we go into a lot of detail about the specific type of stones and what specific nutritional uh, changes you may need to make if you have kidney stones. But also, we spend about the first 20, 25 minutes of the interview talking about his experience with type 1 diabetes and the role ketogenic diet has played for him and how that can translate to treating others with a ketogenic diet, what some of the concerns are, why isn't it standard of care, um, and you know what we need to see in the future, but where the benefits are now for it as well. So it's sort of a combined episode, type 1 diabetes and kidney disease. So he's got a lot of uh, really good points to bring up. Now, um, you can find him at Ketogenic Diabetic Athletes. If you Google that, you'll find his blog. And he also he has two books, The Ketogenic Diet for Type 1 Diabetes and the second one is Master Type 1 Diabetes, The Simple Low-Cost Method to Normalize Blood Sugar. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into our interview with Dr. Keith Runyon. Well, Dr. Keith Runyon, thanks for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Glad to be with you, Brett. Yeah, so it's um, when we think about type 1 diabetes, we normally think of kids, adolescents, teenagers, and not so much adults, but it definitely does happen in adults, and that's what happened to you, right? So here you are, a, a practicing nephrologist, as an adult, and you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Tell us a little bit about that experience for you when you were first diagnosed. Yeah, well, that was in 1998. And uh, actually, I had started losing weight sometime in 1996. And uh, I had a little bit of belly fat. And so when I was seeing that go away, I said, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> Cause I wasn't doing anything to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, but, and that went on for about a year. And then the second, second year, 1997, I started having some symptoms. Uh, it started with occasional diarrhea and then just very gradually uh, over time, it became more frequent. And then about three or four months before I finally broke down and went to see a doctor, I started having the typical symptoms of type 1 diabetes, which is increased thirst, increased urination, uh, hunger that was difficult to satisfy, mm -hmm. and continued weight loss. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but to be honest with you, I was in quite a bit of denial uh, which, you know, I've seen in patients myself that I really had something serious going on. And uh, so that's kind of why I delayed my diagnosis. And then you know, my initial blood sugar was 389 uh, milligrams per deciliter. And uh, it turned out that that diarrhea all that time was a long-term complication of diabetes called autonomic neuropathy. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, so I had, and it's called diabetic diarrhea. And, uh, but anyway, so I immediately started on insulin and, uh, it, it, you know, it's really been a challenge ever since. Uh, I just have to start off by saying that managing type 1 diabetes is not an easy task for anybody, including a doctor with plenty of knowledge. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the biggest take-homes from your sort of initial experience, I think, from what I've, I've heard you, you, you give talks before, is, you know, think about all the people diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, many of them teenagers, adolescents, not only do they have zero medical knowledge, like they're, they're, they don't really have, uh, you know, executive thinking processes completely developed yet, but here you are an adult with an, ex an extraordinary amount of medical knowledge. And it was difficult for you. Imagine what it's like for the average person. And then on top of that, I'm sure you were given the dietary advice of kind of eat whatever you want, just calculate your carbs and cover it with the insulin. Is that about what you were told? Yeah. In fact, uh, the topic of diet never came up yeah. in any of my visits with the endocrinologist. Uh, it was just about, well, you know, how can we change the insulin or can we change how we give it, when we give it, the dose, you know, that sort of thing. But the, the topic of diet never came up. And, you know, that that was right, you know, at the time where the Internet was just becoming available. And uh, so I was kind of relying on the traditional medical knowledge, mm -hmm. you know, what I had been taught and what what was in the literature. But, you know, I didn't really have this ability to jump on the Internet and look for alternatives. Right. So for the next 14 years you know, I just continued eating the same things I was eating and trying to uh, uh, adjust things with insulin. And to be honest with you, I would say it just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so my, my main trouble was not my hemoglobin A1C. They would always write excellent on my lab report. So it, it ranged between six and a half and seven percent. But my problem was uh, frequent hypoglycemic episodes and uh you know they are you, you know because there's so few people who have type 1 diabetes uh, i don't think they have any idea how miserable those hypoglycemic episodes are yeah and and not only are they miserable but when it happens when you're in public it's embarrassing uh and uh, and it's life threatening, and especially when they occur at night, you know that people, you know, can die from hypoglycemia mm -hmm. in their bed at night. So the whole thing was just a, an unpleasant experience for that 14 years before I really stumbled across using a low carb diet for type one diabetes. Yeah. So you mentioned your, your hemoglobin A1C between six and a half and seven, which is excellent, quote unquote, excellent, right? It's still abnormal, right. but that level is considered excellent right. because to get it lower threatens even more hypoglycemic episodes. So even at that level, that abnormal level, but very good control per the definition of type one diabetes, you are still having frequent hypoglycemic episodes. And again, someone with your knowledge and with your experience, 
But my guess is, and, and uh, my guess is that you are more motivated than the average person to get that hemoglobin A1C down to a normal level. Because look, we can tell a patient you're at risk of developing kidney disease or blindness or heart disease, but you've seen it. I mean, you've seen those people on dialysis. You've seen those people show up to your clinic with diabetic retinopathy and diabetic nephropathy. So my guess is you were a little more motivated than the average person. And maybe that's why you were sort of willing to flirt with a little more hypoglycemic episodes to get that A1C under control. Is that is that a right assumption or am I off base here? I think that's a, a very good, <laughs> accurate uh, assumption because in my specialty of nephrology, which deals with kidney diseases, a lot of my patients uh, were diabetic. And so, and also nephrology is a predominantly hospital-based practice. Uh, and so I would see patients, like you said, with all these other complications of diabetes in addition to their kidney right. disease. So, you know, I would go see them when they were having their leg amputated or, you know, uh, not, not so much the eye part. That's usually an outpatient uh, uh that's treated on the outpatient setting. But, but anyway, you know, they would come in with sepsis or, you know, other serious problems. So you're right. I, that, that's what motivated me to try to keep my blood sugars as close to normal as I could. But as I said, when you're just eating the standard American diet or what was at the time recommended by the American Diabetes Association, that diet, would not allow you to both have close to normal blood sugars and not have hypoglycemia. Right. It basically it's an impossible task that they you know present you with. So I really had no expectations that with a hemoglobin A1C of six and a half to seven that I would not develop some complication at some point in my life. So I was basically, you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said to, to paint the picture of the position you were in. So how did you come across a low-carb ketogenic diet then? Well, I had just found out about podcasts. I was training for triathlons. I was on a bike trainer listening to a podcast. It was a triathlon podcast, but they just happened to have uh, – uh, Lauren Cordain interviewed, oh, wow. and he brought up this this whole concept of diet can affect all these chronic diseases that you and I have been taking care of in the hospitals uh, uh, for all these years. And I'm going, really? Wonder why this wasn't mentioned in medical <laughs> school. So, you, you know, that just put me on a road to, to learn more about it because, you know, type 1 diabetes is one of these uh, chronic diseases uh, that is associated with diet. The incidence of type 1 diabetes has been going up just like that of type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer. Type 1 diabetes is right in there. Uh, so I eventually came uh, across a, a, a podcast uh, with Richard Bernstein, and uh, I said, aha, this low, very low-carb diet might be the answer I'm looking for. So I got his book, read it, and uh, started on it uh, within a month or so. I just wanted to make sure I had all the information about it. You know, I found out about Steve Finney and Jeff Volick, and I read their books. 
and uh, quite a few others. And I just wanted to make sure that, yes, this is the real deal and understand how to do it correctly. Mm -hmm. And then on February 8, 2012, I started it and I've never left doing it. And it's been working very well. Uh, and I'm very pleased. Yeah, so what's happened to your hypoglycemic episodes now? Have those all but disappeared, basically? So so I just, yeah, that's the first thing I should mention. So did they go away completely? No. So they went from, I was having anywhere from two to five episodes a week. After I get, went on the ketogenic diet, they dropped to about one or two a week. But I really wasn't satisfied with that either, to be honest with you, because I was so sick of having them. Uh, my average blood sugar did come down um, at, along with the reduction in hypoglycemia. But to be honest with you, all that time for the first uh, seven years of being on the ketogenic diet, I kept looking for additional uh well, I don't like the word hack, but I can't think of another word. Additional things I could do to make it even better. And then in 2019, I said, okay, I'm going to try to make everything as constant as possible that I can think of and see what happens. So that's what I did in 2019. I, I made my meals constant. I changed my exercise so that the insulin sensitivity changes uh, that result from exercise were pretty constant from day to day. And, uh, and then I set a constant sleep schedule, although I don't think that was a huge part of my problem. But anyway, I did all those. And then uh, about six months after starting that, you know, I basically stopped having hypoglycemia. And uh, my average blood sugars were about 100 milligrams per deciliter. And the uh, standard deviation dropped to 18 or less. Yeah, so now we're talking normal. That's real normal, not, not type 1 diabetes normal. That's normal. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. And I confirmed that by finding seven different studies of they took normal, metabolically healthy people and put C, uh, continuous glucose monitors on them and monitoring them for several days. And that's what theirs came out to. So it was 100 average with uh, the median standard deviation of 18 milligrams mm. per deciliter. So, yeah, so that's flat out normal. And I'm not having hypoglycemia. So pretty much arrived at where I'd like to be yeah. and, and, and stay here for the rest of my life. And, you know, and that, again, in talk, when you were talking about motivation, that now is my motivation to stay on the diet, you know, exactly the way I'm doing it, you know, with as few deviations as possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there will be some that come up you know, like if I go for a vacation or something, it's difficult to keep everything exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But the idea is to keep it as close to the same as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, we talk so much about nutrition, and nutrition is, is probably the majority of the effect. But sleep, exercise, even chronic stress, so many other things in life can impact blood sugar to a degree. 
So you have to pay attention to those as well. So I, I like how you, how you kind of through your timeline, nutrition was first, which really cut down the hypos and then getting everything else in, in order and pattern um, kind of cut down the rest. For that first seven years on the ketogenic diet, my average blood sugar was normal. Mm -hmm. So it was 100, yeah. but it was that variability that got a lot better. So I think for a lot of that time, my standard deviation was, say, 28 or 30. But then in 2019, when I made everything constant, that's when the standard deviation came down to normal. Right. And that's what finally made it to where I stopped having the hypoglycemia. So I, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to agree with you that the uh, ketogenic low-carb diet uh, was so powerful that, you know, that resulted in having at least normal blood sugars. Yeah. And then I fine-tuned it a little bit more with those other uh, measures that right. we talked about. Right. Now, some people listening, though, might say, ugh, I can't do that. I can't be that patterned, that consistent, um, that dedicated. You know, who can do that? So if someone who has type 1 diabetes yeah. responds that way, how do, how do you answer that? Well, I, I would actually agree with them. You know, I would say I don't know an, of another way to get the results I have without going to the efforts that I go to. So the question is, what do you do if you're not willing to do what I'm willing to do? And my recommendation would be to raise your uh, your target blood glucose. So, you know, I'm targeting 100, uh, but I would say, well, don't target 100. I would say target maybe 110 or whatever it takes to not have hypoglycemia. I think that that should be the highest priority of a person with type 1 diabetes is to not have hypoglycemia. Because mm -hmm. that, that's the, you know, acute part that can end your life and and or make your life pretty miserable yeah so i would say just raise the target a little bit so that you know taking into account you will have more variability in the blood sugars but at least you can avoid hypoglycemia and and so important to to work with a physician when you're doing this i'd imagine even you as a physician when you first went on a ketogenic diet, did you have to make some dramatic changes in your insulin dosing and did it kind of catch you by surprise? It didn't catch me by surprise because I'd done so much reading yeah. on it. But you're right, it, it was dramatic. So my my total daily insulin dose went from uh, 52 units a day to 25 units yeah. a day. Yeah, I would like to emphasize that I think that the amount of insulin you a person, whether they have diabetes or not, I think the amount of insulin a person is exposed to over their lifetime will have a, a large impact on what chronic diseases they may develop as they age and probably has some influence on what their health span and lifespan will eventually mm -hmm. be. So this is one of the things that is maybe doesn't get talked about enough about a ketogenic diet. And, and of course, it's the ketogenic diet that allowed me to lower those doses. Uh, and so I think that's one of the powers of a ketogenic diet is that you have lower insulin levels. Yeah. So non-diabetics will just secrete less insulin and then diabetic 
people with diabetes who require insulin will need to take less insulin. But I think that's a very a powerful uh, uh, result of following a, a low-carb ketogenic diet. Yeah, and that's, that's a really important topic because we sort of see, you know, type 2 diabetes is more of the insulin resistance pathophysiology. Type 1 diabetes is more just the pancreatic failure. But over time with you know, higher doses of insulin being given over a number of years, that person with type 1 di diabetes can start to manifest insulin resistance physiology just from all that excess insulin. So being able to minimize the amount of insulin they're getting can help prevent that as well. So I think that's a, an interesting corollary between type 1 and type 2 diabetes that we have to be aware of that isn't talked about very much. So I should probably emphasize what you just said yeah. because... Uh, it, it's a significant number of, of persons with type 1 diabetes have uh, the physiology of type 2 diabetes, and they give it a name. It's called double diabetes. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's really up to half, depending on the studies you look at. Um, and, and, the, and also about half of people with type 1 diabetes are either overweight or obese. And so this correlates with this uh, double diabetes problem. One-fourth of everyone with type 1 diabetes has fatty liver disease, yeah. you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well. So this is all part of that physiology. And I think it originates not because people with type 1 need to take an, uh, exogenous insulin, but it's the diet that they have been told to follow mm. that is resulting in the same problems that people with type 2 diabetes get or people with cardiovascular disease get or cancer. You know, it's all, it seems to be going back to the same thing. It's this Western diet uh, uh, that is leading to uh, this uh, insulin resistance picture. And so that happens in people with type 1 also. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I'm not aware of any, you know, randomized controlled trials of a ketogenic diet versus like a whole foods Mediterranean type of diet for the treatment of type one diabetes. Um, so if that does exist, I'd love to hear about it. But even in the absence of that, with everything that we've discussed, do you feel strongly enough to say a ketogenic diet should be the standard of care dietary treatment for people with type one diabetes? Or would you stop short of that comment? You know, I, for instance, I think the American Diabetes Association is trying to come around to the evidence about low-carb diets for diabetes. But, you know, if they're really going to use evidence, then you're right. There are no randomized controlled trials of using a low-carb ketogenic diet in type 1 diabetes. So they really can't say you know, we're giving science-based recommendations when there's an absence of science. So I really don't blame them for not saying this should be the standard of care for type 1 diabetes. What we really need are randomized controlled trials, uh, yeah. you know, and let's find out whether it is more effective than the currently recommended diet. Now, there is that kind of, I guess you'd call it a survey uh, that uh, Dr. Ludwig and uh, Kara Ebeling uh, did that was published in Pediatrics, I think, so, several years ago. Uh, 316 children and adults 
uh, who are following uh, uh, Dr. Bernstein's uh, low-carb ketogenic diet, although he doesn't call it ketogenic. Uh, but anyway, they had excellent results. You know, hemoglobin A1C around 5.4, as I recall, uh, very low incidence of hypoglycemia, very few uh, hospitalizations for anything, very few cases of diabetic ketoacidosis, you know. So, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's not a randomized controlled trial, and, and I, I can understand why the ADA doesn't want to quote that as science. But it gives you the, you know, the suggestion that, you know, 316 is not a minor number of people that are all doing very well with yeah. it. So, you know, I, I think on an individual basis, if somebody wants to pursue it, I, I'm confident in saying it can be done safely. But I, I don't really fault the American Diabetes Association for not promoting it as the standard of care. But I do hope that maybe one day it will be promoted that way once we have some uh, randomized clinical trials supporting it. Right. So maybe not the standard of care, but certainly an option that, that doctors should be aware of, especially for people having frequent hypo episodes or for people who are struggling to keep their A1C in, in a reasonable range. So definitely something people should be aware of, which, right. which is why your books are so helpful and, uh, and interviews like this are so helpful for people to, to hear more about it. Well, I think that was a really good discussion on type 1 diabetes so people can understand uh, the issues that people face with type 1 diabetes and the role for ketogenic diets in that. Um, but now you're, you know, you're also a nephrologist and a kidney specialist, and um, ketogenic diets have been reported to be both beneficial and harmful for kidney function. Uh, both for chronic kidney disease and kidney stone. So depending on where you look, where you read, will determine sort of what kind of information you you see. And sometimes it's hard to know what to believe. So I'm curious, as you look at just the landscape in general, on the role of a ketogenic diet in people with, first let's talk about chronic kidney disease, and second we'll talk about kidney stones. How do you see a ketogenic diet fitting into um, chronic kidney disease? People with uh, chronic kidney disease, the majority of them actually are people who have diabetic nephropathy. So they have diabetes. That's the cause of their kidney disease. So, you know, in, in, in reference to what we've just got through talking about, it makes sense that that would be a good treatment for diabetic kidney disease. Uh, the next largest group is people who have hypertensive uh, uh, nephrosclerosis, which causes chronic kidney disease. Well, the vast majority of those patients have what we call essential hypertension, which for all those years says, we have a cause of hypertension that we don't know what it mm -hmm. is. Well, now I really think that uh, at least the majority of these people with essential hypertension probably have, you know, uh, hypertension due to metabolic syndrome. Uh, you know, again, related to the, the standard American diet uh, situation. So that group would also be benefited by a low-carb diet. And then... Um, so there's sort of two groups I would throw patients into with chronic kidney disease. There's the uh, 
there's the early stage uh, with mildly reduced kidney function, say stage one through three A, which would would cover anywhere from normal uh, estimated GFR uh, down to about 45 uh, milliliters per minute estimated GFR. Those people, I would not really hesitate to uh, recommend a, a low carb and or ketogenic diet for their chronic kidney disease. Uh, the, the group with more advanced chronic kidney disease, you know, is a more controversial, I guess, area. And that would be stage 3B down to stage 5, which is the lowest uh kidney function. That stage five means you're either very close to needing dialysis or you're on dialysis. Um, and uh, that group, there is some there is some data that suggests that maybe limiting your dietary protein intake to around 0.8 grams per kilogram per day might help preserve kidney function. Um, but we also know that patients who have that level or that low level of kidney function also develop uh, anorexia as one of the symptoms of chronic kidney disease. Uh, it's part of the uremic syndrome. And so oftentimes they will end up taking in less protein than 0 0.8. Uh, but their kidney function deteriorates anyway, and then they end up being sarcopenic and have a, a shorter lifespan just just from being malnourished. Mm. So, you know, I don't really think that severe protein restriction is a good idea either. Yeah. So, you know, I would sort of say 0.8 is justifiable, 0 0.8. Uh, grams of protein per kilogram per day is justifiable, but I, I wouldn't really suggest going lower, even in the setting of uh, advanced chronic kidney disease. And, and, you know, the rationale for it is not only preservation of kidney function, but it's also to try to limit the symptoms of uremia, which are made worse by consuming a lot of protein in the setting of uh, uh, advanced uh, kidney failure, uh, but 0.8 is low enough to where you shouldn't get uremic symptoms from uh, from taking in that protein. Yeah, and what's what's the mechanism for? You talked about the uremia, but what about the the direct impact on kidney function? How does more protein hurt um, kidney function when it is already impaired? Well, the original suggestion uh, was that it, it causes hyperfiltration. In, in other words, it causes the nephrons, which are kind of the filtering units of the kidney, to work harder uh, to uh, in the setting of increased protein intake. And, you know, what when you have chronic kidney disease, the number of nephrons are, are declining with time. So, you know, you, you're kind of born with about 2 million nephrons. And then, you know, by the time you get to stage uh, three, uh, chronic kidney disease, you know, you have about half as many as you did before. And then, you know, when you get to stage four, you're about have a quarter of what you had. And so each, as the kidney function declines, 
you're putting more and more stress on the few remaining nephrons that you have. And, uh, and it's also felt that, you know, once you get to a certain point of chronic kidney disease, it's kind of a, a downward course, no matter what you do. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I hundred percent believe that, but that that's been my clinical experience. Um, it would really be nice to have some randomized control trials of a low carb ketogenic diet in patients with uh, advanced uh, chronic kidney disease. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of anecdotes from when I was practicing that, you know, when I put them on the diet, their creatinine stabilized. And then when they went off the diet, they were on dialysis in less than a month. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it sort of makes me think that it might at least be able to prevent people from getting worse. Now, whether it could restore kidney function, I really can't say. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, you know, a ketogenic diet is perfectly compatible with 0.8 grams per kilogram of protein. Um, but the question is, is that still the best approach, even with people with moderately reduced kidney function? Certainly with normal or mild kidney function, we would recommend a higher amount of protein. Um, but is it still the best approach? But now once somebody, I mean, say somebody does go on dialysis at that point, if they have sarcopenia, they're on dialysis at that point, would you crank up their protein and say, look, I mean, unfortunately your kidney function's gone. Now let's build back some of this muscle mass to improve your quality of life and overall health. Is that a time you can make the transition to higher levels of protein? Yes. Well, well, that's what, that's what we've always done. So even before I learned about low carb diets, so the idea is yes, you know once we have dialysis or, or, or you know a kidney transplant, which is even a better treatment for end stage renal failure, uh, it, it would be to increase the the protein and like you say, you know try to get them to lift weights and uh, uh, do regular exercise and build back their their lean uh, muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a definite objective. Yeah, yeah. Well, now let's talk about the other side of this, kidney stones. There was actually a recent meta-analysis about uh, kidney stones suggesting that they're more common in a ketogenic diet. Now, this was looking at people who are on ketogenic diets for uh, epilepsy, so it was sort of the four-to-one type ketogenic diet in most of these uh, these people. But uh, what, what's your take looking at you know clinically and reviewing the literature are kidney stones more common for people following a ketogenic diet? I mean, you know, the article that you did mention was very specific related to primarily children put on a a necessarily extreme ketogenic diet. And just in case people don't listening don't know what you just said about what a four right. to one <laughs> diet is, that's where the four that's the they're consuming about 90% of their calories from fat. So that means they're taking in four grams of fat for every one uh, total of carbohydrates and protein. So uh, it it ends up being a somewhat low-protein diet, a very, very low-carbohydrate diet, and a very, very high-fat diet. And so those children did have uh, uh, 
uh, more kidney stones than children who are not on a ketogenic diet. Um, and they were also primarily uric acid stones uh, rather than what is the most predominant stone is a, is a calcium stone, either calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. Um, but uh, Eric Kossoff did a very nice randomized controlled trial of, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't. It was a retrospective comparison between two cohorts. So he had a large group of patients uh, treated with the four to one diet. And then he preemptively started to treat the children with potassium citrate, which raises the urine pH and makes, makes it less likely for uric acid to crystallize in the urine. And he found that by preemptively putting them on potassium citrate, he could reduce the incidence of uric acid stones to one-fifth mm. of what it had been in the other group who were not given that. So basically, they've incorporated potassium citrate as part of their protocol uh, when they initiate a four-to-one ketogenic diet to prevent those stones. So it, it was only about 2% of the children receiving potassium citrate that ever got a, a uric acid stone. Yeah. So, uh, but then if you just talk about the general public who might be using a ketogenic diet for you know, weight loss or treatment of diabetes or whatnot, I think that there's really no evidence that, that that kind of diet, which, you know, to be honest with you, I'm on a one-to-one -one diet. Um, so, you know, the number of grams of carbohydrate plus protein equals the number of grams of fat I eat. Uh, and that's what most people on a ketogenic diet would be on. So I've never, you know, there have been so many studies of, of this type of diet, you know, going out six months, uh, 12 months, two years, and nobody in the, none of the authors in the papers mention, oh, by the way, you know, we had people having kidney stones. Yeah. So you know, I, I just don't think that uh, that's an issue that we need to worry about when we are contemplating going on a low carb ketogenic diet. Yeah, that's a, that's a good perspective. But but now say someone does have a history of of stones, uric acid stones or calcium oxalate stones. They have that history and they're going on a ketogenic diet. What kind of advice could you give them to potentially reduce their risk? I mean, whether actually whether they go on a ketogenic diet or not, if they have a history of stones, there are things they should be doing to reduce their risks and I assume those those hold for if they are starting a ketogenic diet, but what, what are some of those take-homes for people to know what they can do to reduce their risk of a recurrent uric acid stone or calcium oxalate stone? To be honest with you, I think the recommendations would not change if, the, if they were going to be on a, a low-carb ketogenic diet. So for people who aren't familiar with what you're referring to, in a person who has recurrent stones, that, that's a whole different group than people who have maybe had one stone and they're at low risk of having another. So just from the history, you know, the family history and, and other factors that, that uh, 
doctors uh, talk to patients who've had a stone, you know, as part of our evaluation, we, we kind of make a determination on what, what is your risk of having another stone? Because about half of the people who have a kidney stone never have another. Yeah. And, and it may be, a, it may have been due to some, you know, precipitating event, like they got very dehydrated or something. And, and at the same time, maybe they were uh, eating a lot of something that's high in purines and they got a uric acid stone or something like that. Uh, so it, it's when you, when you now talk about, you said recurrent stones, now that's a whole different ball of wax. So those people need a, a full evaluation for why they're having the stone they're having. So, you know, part of the evaluation is actually collecting the stone, having the stone analyzed. Is it a calcium oxalate stone? Is it a calcium phosphate stone? Is it a uric acid stone? Is it a struvite stone? Is it a cysteine stone? And then a 24-hour urine is collected, and numerous factors are measured in there. So you're measuring calcium, uh, phosphate, magnesium, uh, citrate, oxalate, cysteine, you know, a whole battery of tests are done on that 24-hour urine. And the results from that tell you uh, uh, what dietary changes might be helpful, um, what uh, treatments might be helpful, and what dietary – maybe I said that already – dietary changes could be made. And then one of the primary ones is just plain drinking more water. So in people with recurrent stones, it's recommended that they drink two and a half to three liters of water a day, which is a lot. It's about 10 to 12 cups of water a day. But that's really important because when you dilute the urine, then you're much less likely to form a stone. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's also three different medications that can be given. One I already mentioned is the potassium citrate. Um, but for people with uric acid stones, allopurinol is an oral medication that can reduce the serum uric acid level and make stones less likely to form. Um, and then uh, for people with calcium stones, they can take a diuretic called thiazide diuretic uh, which reduces the amount of calcium that appears in the urine. Uh, so, you know, the combination of dietary changes, increased water intake, and whichever of those three medicines are deemed important, if at all, uh, you know, should really reduce the likelihood of ever having another stone. Yeah. You know, we we talk about with low-carb diets about compliance. Well, you would be amazed how difficult it is to get people to comply with drinking that much (laughs) water a day every day for the rest of their life. So, you know, compliance with something as simple as drinking water is is not as obvious as you might right. So. Especially if you have a job situation where you can't get up and go to the bathroom whenever you need to, right? Because you're probably going to the bathroom a lot during exactly. the day if you if you have to drink that much water. Yeah, yeah. and you know, probably you're going to be getting up at night to go to the bathroom right. too. Right. <laughs> and people might not like that. Yeah. Well, so for for just like simple answers, if you have uric acid stones, should you decrease the amount of meat that you eat? Is there a connection there? 
Well, I would say that what you should specifically, you're talking about uric acid right. stones. So, so there are quite a few dietary things that increase the chance of having a uric acid stone. So, n- number one would be foods that are high in purines. Uh, purines are uh, compounds that are are in our DNA, our RNA. Uh, purines are in um, ATP, which is the uh, the energy molecule that the mitochondria make. Um, and so foods like uh, anchovies, uh, scallops, uh, mussels uh, uh, are, are tend to be high in, in purines. Um, and so those, you know, you would want to watch how, how much of those that you eat. Um, and then uh, alcohol, alcohol is another, um, particularly beer because of the yeast that's in beer. Yeast is high in, in purines. Um, uh, bacon, turkey, and organ meats, you know, like liver, tend to be higher in purines. But there's also quite a few uh, uh, plants that are high in, in purines, like shiitake mushroom, mm-hmm. uh, mushrooms, uh, tomatoes, uh, blue cheese, uh, nori, which is uh, seaweed, and, and natto, which is uh, fermented, fermented uh, soybeans. Uh, so those are high purine foods that you might want to watch about taking too many of. And then there's uh, foods that are called umami foods, uh, which are, are high in uh, glutamate. Now, glutamate is an amino acid that... Uh, can be broken down into either uh, ammonia, uh, like all the other proteins do, or it can be broken down to uric acid. Mm-hmm. So, um, so plants that uh, have a glutamate would be uh, green tea, uh, tomatoes, corn, green peas. Um, again, nori. Uh, which is a seaweed, um, soy sauce, and, and then animal foods that are high in glutamate are also scallops yeah. and oysters and clams uh, and, and cheddar cheese. Uh, so that, that would be – and then, you know, I've been l- listening to Dr. Richard Johnson, who is a nephrologist in, in Colorado, and he emphasizes that that there are other sources of uric acid production and, and that would be fructose. So, you know, table sugar and all these processed foods that are supplemented with sugar and high fructose corn syrup, as well as um, these high glycemic carbohydrates, um, carbohydrate or glucose in that setting of high glycemic uh, carbohydrates can be converted to fructose via the polyol pathway. And then he also emphasizes that uh, dehydration can increase uh, antidiuretic hormone, uh, which then uh, uh, causes uh, increased uric acid production. That's a very thorough overview. Yeah, it's a very thorough overview. It's certainly not so simple as decreased meat. There are some very specific foods 
to look at for, for uric acids, and some of them are surprising. Yeah, the majority of what you would think of as high-protein uh, 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 foods, like animal foods, they are primarily broken down to urea and ammonia. And the, the kidney has no trouble excreting those. So, uh, both ammonia and urea are, are nitrogen-containing compounds. And every amino acid, which is a, a component of protein, has a, a, a nitrogen group on it. So, so in the breakdown of protein, it's broken down to amino acids. And then those amino acids are broken down to ammonia and urea and they're excreted in the urine uh, and so the majority of the protein ends up going out as urea and ammonia not uric acid so that's why i wanted to emphasize these other sources of uric acid so it's not just a simple black and white you know like the more protein you eat the more uric acid you're going to have to make. Yeah, but that's frequently the message that's heard. So I, I'm very glad you covered that in detail with yeah, the nuance. Yeah, I don't think that's, uh, yeah, there's more nuance to that, yeah. yes. Well, well, very good. Well, uh, I, want, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And this has been a really good discussion about type 1 diabetes, the role for ketogenic diets, and uh, kidney function and stones and how those interplay with ketogenic diets how a lot of what we hear may not be so accurate, but we have to get into the details. So I really appreciate that. If people wanted to hear more about your journey and what you're doing clinically or and with your own type 1 diabetes, where can they find to learn more about you? First of all, I have to admit, I'm not really an active social media person, but I do have a blog. Uh, it's uh, ketogenic diabetic athlete. Um, you can just Google that. It'll come up. Um, and then I, my latest book is called, uh, master type one diabetes. So they could check those out if they want. Uh, I am on Twitter, but to be honest with you, I'm just not a fan of, uh, the social media thing. Yeah. Better for your mental health. <laughs> Occasionally somebody will direct message me and, uh, uh, somebody will direct message me and I'll reply. Um, and then my email address is is on the is on the blog. If somebody wants to contact me, I'm happy to answer questions and that sort of thing. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you.